You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about an aspect of blockchains that's not talked about very often unless something goes wrong. And that is the aspect of security. When we talk about blockchain and security, there are many different aspects to it at different levels. So, today we'll discuss security from the perspective of the blockchain network itself and then the security of the smart contracts that run on top of the network and lastly security from the perspective of the end user that is security of the wallets that they choose to show their funds in so uh, nikhil can you start off by broadly going into what we mean by security in all these different aspects and maybe even compare security and privacy you know uh, privacy and security are two terms that people generally tend to use together but in the case of blockchains i guess both may not always go together so uh, could you start off by touching upon that as well sure yeah yeah uh, so great point uh, kk um, so blockchain security definitely is one of those things it's a core argument uh, for the whole cryptocurrency network right so everywhere every time we talk about you know why we want to do blockchain so why we want to do uh, proof of work we basically come back to the idea of okay the blockchain is secure the blockchain uh, is uh, it makes sure that your uh, something happen when I mean, something is written on the blockchain it cannot be changed etc etc right but what exactly does that mean uh, because at the same thing time like you said uh, people seem to kind of associate blockchains and bitcoin especially with privacy uh, or being uh, anonymous and uh, hidden and uh, stuff like that right right and uh, it, it's kind of interesting that this particular perception exists because if you think about it uh, the way blockchains especially blockchains like bitcoin have uh, or claim that they are secure is by being transparent right so the idea over there is in uh, a public blockchain like bitcoin ethereum or any of the public blockchains uh, the idea is that the data that is written on the ledger is uh, copied and uh, kept physically uh, by multiple nodes on that network and uh, everybody who has access to a node or who is running a node can see exactly all the transactions that have been written on that ledger right so they know exactly who has given uh, whom what amount right the only thing that is not written over there is the actual uh, physical names or the details of uh, any particular person thing or you know entity right so this might actually be so this is basically i think the uh, one of the things that says uh, that people point to when they say hey the blockchain is anonymous they say hey you can't see anything it's only a 
you know, a hash over there. It's a, it's just a random jumble of numbers and letters uh, that you can't tell anything uh, about the person, right? right. Uh, and that is true. Uh, that is absolutely true. But uh, the point basically is that that random number of uh, number uh, letters and uh, the random jumble of numbers and letters is A, unique, and B, immutable. So if at any point of time uh, that address or that hash basically gets associated to a person, immediately his entire history of transactions on that ledger is immediately available, right? Because that, that, that number or that, that address is freely available to every node, right? So it is, while it is kind of true that there is no identifying details associated to it, the problem basically becomes as soon as somebody kind of does that association externally, uh, immediately everything is transparent. Right, and then that's how uh, IRS is basically able to track people's uh, transactions and stuff uh, using yeah, the I mean, chain even answers, not right? forget the IRS. It is uh, that is how basically uh, the FBI is able to uh, track and hold on to or uh, what they call seize the assets of uh, criminals who have uh, used Bitcoin. Right? Uh, right, in the good old days, <laughs> criminals could. Uh, bury their uh, treasure or uh, hide their uh, coins uh, somewhere. But here, basically, as soon as that that particular uh, connection is uh, made available or known, it's all gone, right? It's all it's all uh, available to the FBI. In fact, actually, a lot of the time, the law enforcement agencies use uh, their authority over centralized crypt, uh, crypto exchanges uh, uh, to issue warrants so that they can make that association and then basically track uh, and keep an eye on these transactions that are happening across the internet and kind of build up profiles of people and what they've been doing and then kind of finally bounce at uh, after a prolonged investigation and uh, especially from a forensic uh, side, right? It is very easy to then go back through all the transactions that have happened with that hash to identify more partners uh, that that might have uh, interacted with this uh, bad actor, right? And uh, so, so that's that's kind of one of the superpowers of blockchains and cryptocurrencies uh, that nobody talks about when they talk about, you know how bad it is and how it is being used by drug dealers and uh, uh, kidnappers and, and ransomware uh, people. So, so yeah, so that's basically the privacy point. Uh, the security point, basically, again, like I said, uh, the idea is that uh, since everybody has a copy, any change made to that ledger is immediately apparent to everybody else and they can then uh, go and... Uh, point out that change or reject that change as invalid and that's how the immutability is maintained right right so it's uh, it's it's kind of ironic that uh, the the very thing that makes uh, blockchain so secure is also what makes uh, tracking down and looking at uh, things on the blockchain so easy right so um, to first take a look at security from the network's perspective right? Uh, and there are many different ways in which security of the network can be compromised. So uh, when you look at some of the ways that a blockchain network can be attacked, uh, the first one is obviously the most prominent, 
that is the 51% attack. And uh, this is when a person or an entity controls more than 51% of the hashing power of the network. And uh, this is when an attacker can roll back the transactions on the blockchain, thereby compromising the most important characteristic of a blockchain, uh, as you mentioned, that is immutability of data, right? So uh, this kind of an attack is uh, generally easiest to execute when a network is new and the number of uh, network participants are less. Uh, and as the network becomes bigger and the hashing power increases, it becomes more expensive and more difficult to execute the sort of an attack. So um, these kinds of attacks are often witnessed on chains like uh, Ethereum Classic, which is a fork of Ethereum, or other forks of Bitcoin. Uh, and like I said, you know, they're attempted mostly when the overall hashing power of the network is low, uh, and because you know that's when it's least expensive to attempt such an attack. Uh, the second attack uh, is is which which I'll talk about is the Sybil attack, which uh, is when uh, one node operator can generate a bunch of fake nodes. So uh, from the outside, it will look like the network is decentralized as, as it has many nodes, but a vast majority of them would be owned by the same person or entity. And uh, therefore, this person would look to gain more than 51% control of the network uh, through these through this large network of fake nodes. So again, uh, even though Sybil attack is slightly different, the end goal here also is uh, basically a 51% attack. And then there are other attacks as well, such as uh, phishing, routing attacks, uh, exploiting uh, vulnerabilities in your endpoints. So uh, Nikhil, could you go a little deeper into some of these attacks and maybe look at some of the ways to prevent them? And also, there's a pretty standard practice in the industry to do what is known as penetration testing, which is basically a process where ethical hackers or other security experts do a security assessment of your blockchain and uh, try to find any bugs or loopholes uh, in it. So from a software perspective, could you also sort of uh, go into what penetration testing is like? Right. Uh, so let's take the the second question first, right? So uh, what is a penetration testing and what is uh, what does that actually do? And uh, there's a different, there are two aspects to it. One is a, uh, the penetration test itself and the other one is known as an audit. Uh, penetration test essentially is one of the many things that an audit ha uh, does, right? Since uh, blockchains are immutable and uh, since smart contracts and uh, writing code or changes to the blockchain's uh, software essentially is hard because it, of that immutability, uh, you can't really uh, afford to make uh, too many mistakes, right? Right. So uh, what uh, happens basically is that a lot of companies... Uh, especially blockchain companies uh, set aside a significant portion uh, of their uh, development budget uh, to make sure that uh, once they've developed their code and software, uh, it, that it is uh, audited, right? And usually uh, this means that it is audited by a third party, uh, different software company or a different third party specialist auditor and usually there is uh, some sort of certification involved, right? So there's a, the auditor basically goes through it and is, uh, provides its recommendations. Recommendations are implemented. And then finally, once the auditor is satisfied, uh, they issue a uh, some a cert a certificate, right? And a kind of like a warranty that kind of tells the larger world uh, that, yeah, this, this particular 
smart contract or piece of software or blockchain uh, is uh, legitimate, it has been tested and does not have any obvious uh, vulnerabilities, right? But the bottom line obviously is that an audit is still an audit. It's done by human beings and uh, yeah, things can go wrong, right? So what, what, what actually happens in an audit and one of the actions that happens in an audit is known as a penetration test. A penetration test is when, like you said, an ethical hacker tries to compromise the system, uh, usually under controlled circumstances, right? So they'll basically have some sort of arrangement with the uh, company that is building the software or some of the key people in the company that is building the software. Uh, that they're going to do this at this particular time and then that and uh, you know uh, ask for uh, and then part of part of the exercise is also to see if these attempts are detected and dealt with right because security is a multi-dimensional thing it is not just probing the network uh, or the software itself it's also probing uh, the people who write the software, right? So a uh, major part of hacking nowadays is social engineering. Right. And uh, a penetration test includes that. Uh, uh, a good penetration test will include that. Yeah, so uh, I, j- I just want to ma- uh, ask a quick question there. So uh, like you mentioned, uh, as, as, as a part of the penetration testing, an organization or, or a project, they uh, hire these ethical hackers to test out the system to look for vulnerabilities. Uh, since the whole blockchain revolution or blockchain movement is uh, decentralized in nature, right? Like where do things like bug bounties and all fit into this? Like how much of that uh, gets, uh, or, you know, like how, how how significant it is, you know, in actually uh, improving the security of the network and, and the decentralized aspect of it, you know, the, the, the uh, contributions coming from the community. Right. So uh, there's a, distinction to be made here right so a penetration test is usually done as part of an audit and an audit is done by a company being paid for it by another company right uh, so this is usually done in the early stages when uh, you know a particular system is being set up right a new blockchain is being created or a new smart contract is being deployed or a level 2 network is being created right and usually uh, it is our experience that this is uh, usually a foundation or a company or some single entity that kind of is doing the investment to set this up, right? So the audit basically happens that way. Uh, a bug bounty is different from an audit in the sense that a bug bounty essentially is an ongoing thing, right? Uh, so it is basically a set amount, uh, some award or funds set aside that says that if anyone, somebody uh, can prove that uh, this particular system has a bug that can be verified, we will give you this bounty, right? So it's almost like a uh, a prize uh, for for somebody who kind of uh, to incentivize people to kind of have a, a close look at and try out different things to attack and compromise uh, the system on an ongoing basis. So this is this is not usually not limited to a particular window of time, right? Whereas an audit essentially has a start and an end, and then there is a certificate, and and then that kind of you deploy it, and it's usually tied to a particular version of the software. Makes sense. 
right? Uh, so to continue on the audit uh, thing, so a penetration test is one part of it. Another part of it, uh, a, l- a large part of it, is uh, actually going through the code itself, right? So there is uh, nowadays, obviously, uh, there are tools to do that, software tools that automatically uh, go through and uh, parse uh, all the software code that has been written and try to find patterns and they try to find, uh, you know, do tests, uh, uh, automated large amounts of automated tests to try and see where the software is breaking, where it is crashing, uh, whether it is crashing and under what uh, kinds of inputs it is crashing. It, they try to find patterns of known security issues and, and try to uh, uh, look at that, right? So that's another another one of the set of actions or a set of uh, things that an audit would do. And a third uh, thing, and this is probably the major, major one, is where, you know, uh, the auditing company goes deep, deep into the architecture and the design of the system. Uh, they talk to the developers, they talk to uh, the architects or the lead uh, people who designed it, understand what uh, what's happening, and then try to logically break the system, right? They go through and try to do things uh, that might expose weaknesses in the design itself, right? And that's, uh, so that's generally at a very high level what an audit uh, uh, entails. Uh, usually uh, there will at the end of it be a report, uh, you know, saying, you know, you found uh, a few of these things, these are some recommendations, these are some things that you absolutely have to do. And uh, usually there is an iteration where the company who's uh, asked for the audit has a chance to go and fix all the findings and then come back and ask for uh, a subsequent uh, audit being done, right? So it's kind of like a follow-up that finally checks to make sure that all, uh, all the fixes are properly implemented. Right. That's usually what happens uh, in an audit. To talk about some of the other uh, network uh, vulnerabilities or network, uh, let's say, strategies to attack a network, right? Um, and one, one major one is the phishing attack. Uh, another kind of way of calling them are they're known as social engineering attacks. Uh, and essentially, at a very basic level, what it is, uh, the goal is essentially to try and steal uh, the users or the end users uh, private key or credentials in some form, right? So it can be the uh, private key to his wallet. Uh, it can be user ID and password to his crypto exchange. Uh, it can be any number of ways to kind of get access to the keys to the kingdom, essentially, which is essentially the private key to his address, right? So his crypto addresses. And uh, this usually phishing attacks are in the form of, uh, you know, legitimate looking emails, uh, fake hyperlinks, uh, uh, even social media messages. Uh, Of late, there's been kind of apparently uh, uh, a rise in uh, uh, attacks over social engineering attacks over, over chat. Uh, and uh, dating applications. So apparently there's something called a Tinder uh, exploiter who goes around, uh, you know, using Tinder to kind of socially engineer 
uh, innocent victims into uh, giving up uh, credentials for whatever made up reason right so uh, there's there's a there's a there are a lot of different ways to do this and uh, essentially in blockchains and cryptocurrencies as soon as you've given away your private key it's like you've lost your key right it's like your key to your house or a key to your bank uh, safe uh, the attacker can use that key to basically open up uh, and drain your account and uh, walk away with the money and and that's that's essentially what what phishing attacks do uh, another one uh, that's pretty uh, big uh, is known as routing attacks right uh, and this is at a level uh, a more technical level it's a low a level that is lower than that right and this is essentially the uh, compromise of the core internet protocols on which the blockchains are built right so uh, it could be something like a dns poisoning attack so where basically you know you somebody goes and hacks the dns server so that your domain, right? So suppose you're, uh, I don't know, bitcoin.com and uh, your domain basically gets uh, hacked or taken over and then the hacker basically can pretend to be bitcoin.com, right? And kind of send uh, pretty much uh, all the traffic that goes to that site uh, over uh, to other places. There's a, the, another one which is kind of interesting that's coming out is uh, this, these attacks on the border gateway pro protocol which is essentially a protocol that uh, is implemented in the interchange between different internet networks between government uh, between countries right okay so uh, gateway protocols that kind of move from one country's uh, network switch to another country's network switch and uh, there is uh, there's basically uh, attacks around uh, the certificates or the social, uh, you know, the SSL certificates that are used to encrypt the traffic that goes between uh, servers uh, and nodes. And all of these basically, the best way to uh, prevent them uh, is to A, implement uh, secure routing protocols, uh, use encryption and uh, you know change your passwords regularly uh, there are there is a concept uh, and this is not related to uh, the blockchain protocols itself uh, uh, it is basically uh, there in most uh, i mean in 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 all good kind of network distributed network uh, systems uh, which is the idea of a, a zero trust network right where every node in the network basically works under the assumption of zero trust and every every kind of uh, handshake or every kind of any kind of uh, packet exchange is done only uh, after an exchange of certificates and you know making sure that uh, the person is who they say they are in some form or the other right so yeah these these are some things that you can do to prevent routing attacks and so, uh, i mean from from what you described I mean, routing attack is basically, you know, it's somebody intercepting the network at the physical level, you know, and, and being able to route the traffic from there to some other point, right? And so I guess this would make it more difficult for the end user to actually even know that, you know, this is happening to them. Absolutely. So this is something that uh, it's not it's not actually a problem from the end, uh, entirely from the end user's perspective. This is actually a problem uh, of the design of your network architecture of your system, 
right? So if you write your design your network architecture for system that does not use certificates, that does not use encryption, and kind of assumes that, okay, uh, as soon as you verified somebody once, he is verified for, he is trusted for a long time, uh, these kind of things can happen to you, and it won't be, it's not, it's not necessarily the end user that has to do it. It can be from any of the nodes. It can be from any part of the system. Is this the same as what you would call a man in the middle attack? You know, where somebody in between is able to. Essentially, yes. Uh, a man in the middle attack is a specific type of type of attack. And this is before blockchains. Uh, this has been uh, there ever since uh, the webs, uh, the uh, uh, internet became uh, big. And, you know, the idea of a web server and a web a browser kind of came in vogue. Uh, a man in the middle attack essentially is when, uh, Somebody uh, routes your uh, user, fools your user into thinking that uh, the traffic that goes through uh, is is actually going to the server when it is going to this man in the middle. And all the all the person is doing, the man in the middle is doing, is basically uh, inter- uh, getting the t- uh, traffic from the user, you know, decrypting it or uh, uh, reading it in some way, and then passing it on transparently to the server. And the server basically thinks that it is the man in the middle who is actually calling uh, on behalf of the user. And then the uh, server responds and the man in the middle basically reads that and then transits, transfers it back to the browser, right? So uh, from the browser's perspective, uh, it sent a request and it's getting a response and uh, everything's fine. From the server's request, uh, from the server's perspective, it is getting a request and sent a response and everything is fine. Uh, the only problem basically is that uh, the person in the middle is able to see uh, what's going on on either side, right? So things like uh, passwords and usernames and uh, confidential information, everything can be read. And generally, this is where having a certificate uh, is useful because a certificate is used to encrypt that data. So even if a man man in the middle comes in between, they are not able to decrypt or read that data. So it's essentially useless to them. And uh, so that's that's how you kind of prevent it. Then uh, the, I guess one of the other big uh, vulnerabilities that we talk about uh, are the uh, blockchain endpoint vulnerabilities, right? And by that, what we mean is uh, the actual endpoints that interact with the blockchain. Uh, these could be the wallets, uh, the mobile, uh, your PC, the browser. All of these are endpoints uh, where the uh, which the user uses as an interface to interact with the actual blockchain network. Right. How is this a vulnerability? Uh, well, you know, People can get their mobile hacked. Uh, there are several sophisticated and unsophisticated ways to do it. Uh, see the phishing conversation earlier about how, how that can happen. Uh, and then as soon as your mobile is compromised or your desktop is compromised, all the data that's sitting in that is available to the hacker and uh, they can then uh, pretend to be you, right? They can actually take your uh, credentials and do whatever they want. So that's essentially an endpoint vulnerability. It's known as an endpoint vulnerability because it is uh, dependent on the security of the endpoint, right? So uh, there's nothing much the blockchain system can do if you are running, uh, you're having an old phone and you're running an old version of software 
uh, operating system on your phone that has got a known uh, vulnerability that can be exploited to take take over your phone, right? So the that uh, sort of thing uh, is uh, so that system is not under anybody's control. Uh, it's just bad uh, because of improper security practices. The patches have not been applied or whatever. And in fact, even more worryingly. It even can be a reasonably new updated phone and you've done everything correct, but there's a zero day vulnerability that nobody knew about and your phone got compromised, right? So it's, it's kind of like one of those things, uh, where there's not that much control other than, uh, reducing the chance of that happening by keeping yourself updated and, uh, you know, doing things like not saving your blockchain keys in your mobile or your computer and using, uh, hardware locks and keys for that okay so uh, apart from uh, looking at the weaknesses in the network layer and of course looking at the endpoint vulnerabilities let's just uh, take a quick look at the security issues with the smart contracts that run on blockchain networks so uh, there's multiple ways that we can look at this so one we can look at the security issues with the smart contract uh, platform the platform on which the smart contract is being written uh, or the security issues with the applications that integrate with the blockchain. So, for example, the web applications that the users uh, use to access any functionality from the smart contracts or any similar software. And uh, third are the security issues with the smart contract code itself. So, uh, Nikhil, could you kind of go into what are the possible uh, attack points and like what are the possible problems that can come with any flaw in the code that, that runs? Yeah, so it kind of uh, is the same thing that we talked about uh, a little earlier, right? So why it's it's the reason why an audit is done uh, on your smart contract. Uh, uh, so as if you have vulnerable smart contracts uh, and they are on your that have been published onto your ledger, uh, you have kind of like the worst of both worlds, right? Not only is it uh, immutable, so you can't fix the problem. Uh, it is also transparent, so everybody can actually read the code and see the problem, right? So right. it's kind of like a uh, the worst of both worlds, and so that's why you do an audit and kind of try to prevent it. What kind of uh, issues can happen? Well, there can be any number of issues, uh, ranging from logical errors to uh, errors that uh, happen because you didn't think about the size of the data that could be sent, uh, uh, errors to rec- in, in recursion, or overflow errors, there's a bunch of different uh, things that can happen to your code. I think the interesting thing about this is that uh, while you are actually writing a smart contract and posting it onto your blockchain, the blockchain itself in many cases are not is not staying still right so there are upgrades to the blockchain platform itself uh, the code uh, your your uh, the underlying uh, blockchain uh, node co- uh, the evm or the virtual machine that your code is running in or the smart contract is running in might get upgraded or changed uh, so there's there's also that to consider so you have versions to uh, handle so it's generally nowadays a good practice to write smart contracts in a way that they can be upgraded, right? So you can basically take, uh, they usually have some sort of key or lock that uh, can be deployed to kind of deprecate or lock them out and uh, prevent that, that particular version from being used. And, and, uh, generally then, uh, users are then 
uh, asked to move to the newer version, et cetera, et cetera. Now, so that's that's one aspect, which is a smart contract. The other aspect you talked about is the, the wallets uh, themselves. Wallets are of different types. So you can have wallets uh, which are mobile apps. Uh, you can have wallets that are extensions on your browser. Most famously, MetaMask is, is one of those. And you can have wallets that are applications on your PC or your desktop or your Mac or uh, uh, whatever, right? And uh, this basically would be not considered smart contracts. They are kind of like just software. Uh, they're software tools and uh, they need to be written securely. Uh, they kind of, depending on the language that they are written in, they have known and unknown vulnerabilities um, and, and kind of you need to do the audit, uh, regular software audit. There's another class of wallet, uh, which is known as a smart contract wallet, which is essentially a smart contract that has been written to uh, perform the uh, functions of a wallet, right? What does, so what, ultimately, what does a wallet do? A wallet kind of holds your coins, uh, gives you access to your coins, allows you to transact with the coin and uh, do things like that. A smart contract, basically, wallet essentially is a smart contract that you have deployed onto the blockchain to which you sent your coins. And then whenever you need to do a transaction, you can basically go to that smart contract and call it with your uh, key and say, okay, this transaction needs to happen and the smart contract does that. And obviously there are advantages to that. Uh, you can do things like, you know, uh, schedule transactions and stuff like that because smart contract is essentially uh, independent of your computer. But then it has got its own problems as well. Uh, the code is transparent, the data is transparent unless you've encrypted it. And so having encrypted data uh, has its own set of uh, problems because it's an overhead on and, and makes things more expensive in terms of gas. Your smart contract wallet is consuming gas, so uh, that's also more expensive in terms of transactions, etc. So it's, it's kind of like a uh, mix of things. There's actually one class of wallet uh, that I've not talked about, which is the hardware wallets, and that's widely considered to be kind of like the gold standard. And uh, a hardware wallet uh, is of two types. You have uh, the simple ones, which are uh, known as packed paper wallets. Um, paper wallets essentially are just paper uh, addresses where you write down everything. You write down your private key, you write down your public key, uh, and uh, you write down uh, how much money you put into it, uh, how many coins you put into it. And uh, it's on a piece of paper, it's air-capped, you put it in your safe or you manage it somehow and uh, external from the internet so hackers can't get to it uh, but obviously <laughs> it doesn't prevent physical people from getting to it right and physical things to happen to it uh, the other type of wallet uh, essentially is uh, wallets like ledger and trezor which are encrypted devices right and these encrypted devices basically will uh, have the key, the private key kind of hidden and encrypted or hard-coded in them. And it's never available uh, to any software uh, externally to the wallet uh, and to that device. And basically, the only thing that ever gets exchanged are the public uh, keys. And usually they have uh, integrations with uh, 
other wallets like metamask etc so that you know they can act as the sort of cold storage whereas the metamask or whatever is the hot storage and stuff like that um, the i mean these hardware wallets are expensive but again like i said they're supposed to be uh, the gold standard in terms of uh, physical security right I'll, I'll just touch on that a little bit so well like you mentioned you know there's hot wallets and cold wallets and cold wallets generally essentially uh, are these hardware wallets so uh, a hot wallet ideally would be something like uh, a software wallet or maybe your wallet on an exchange which you would be using as a day trader and so if you're using it that frequently you need it to be connected to the internet all the time so that's why it's called a hot wallet whereas cold wallet or cold storage is something that is not connected to the internet all the time and the only time you connect it is you know when when you want to make a not very frequent transaction and you know you would actually need to physically press a button uh, for the transaction to get executed uh, so that's why it requires that physical action and that's why hardware wallets are considered to be a lot more secure than software wallets uh, however i i must mention that you know even though that that is so it is uh, they they're not completely immune to hacks either and uh, there have been reports in the past where vulnerabilities uh, were found in certain wallets where a person would be able to guess the pin of the device if they had uh, physical access to the device so uh, for example you know back in 2020 in the keep key wallet that is a hardware wallet by shapeshift uh, there was a vulnerability found wherein if someone had access to the wallet uh, and they opened it and they had access to its memory chip uh, and if they monitored the voltage changes in this memory chip they would actually be able to uh, decipher the pin uh, when it would be entered and uh, this uh, vulnerability was fixed later on and uh, even though it was not something that uh, an attacker could have exploited very easily however you know if someone took thousands of readings of this memory chip's voltage uh based on different inputs of the pin they would uh, eventually be able to identify the pin of the target wallet so uh, this this was a uh, one such vulnerability you know which which got fixed later on by the, by the keep key wallet but uh, just just to mention that uh, even though hardware wallets are like like nikhil mentioned they are considered the gold standard uh, there are these exceptions sometimes you know when there is a possible vulnerability where the hardware wallet can also be compromised so uh lastly to look at the aspect of security in blockchain tech uh from a larger perspective right so a lot of people you know when when they are first entering into this blockchain space or uh, they're looking to invest in cryptocurrencies or something they they see it as a as a fuzzy place you know where where you need to essentially take ownership of your own security right uh compared to how you know like if you let's say if you have a bank account your funds are insu- uh, are insured you know by the bank up to a certain degree so uh, people have all these uh, different reservations you know when when they look at uh, blockchain ecosystems uh, from the security perspective so uh, where do you see security as a uh, as an aspect in the overall adoption of blockchain tech and overall adoption of cryptocurrencies you know how, how do you see it playing a role or or does it even play a role significantly you know going forward um does it uh, play a significant role how Uh, in terms of adoption like do you see the average person you know uh, or do you see uh, a grandma in the year 2022 being comfortable using cryptocurrencies and being uh, comfortable no, with using no definitely not in the year 2022 um, in fact i i doubt if the grandma uh, today's grandma uh, will be comfortable 
with a lot of things in 2022, right? There's unfortunately, we're still at the kind of early stages of all of this, right? And we're still kind of figuring out the technical basics of how blockchain should work, right? We're still not sure uh, what the use cases are, uh, whether cryptocurrencies is the be all and end all, whether there's going to be something else. Uh, uh, it's only now that, you know, like corporations and companies are trying to look at blockchain technologies and kind of like saying, okay, this is a legitimate way to uh, build software and kind of uh, uh, do things and kind of uh, uh, they're trying to look at that now. So uh, the user interface is still not fully figured out, right? So the, what is the best UX? Uh, what is the most secure way of doing things? Uh, but at the same time, uh, one that is, uh, easily usable unfortunately uh, and this is not this is true not just about blockchains it's also true about software right uh, security and uh, ease of use uh, uh, getting the two the balance right is extremely hard right and uh, uh, the companies that get that balance right uh, are usually do so after a lot of investment a lot of pain and uh, and then uh, that becomes a major competitive advantage for them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I personally feel that uh, all these kind of vulnerabilities like social engineering and blockchain, uh, the endpoint vulnerabilities and all, are kind of orthogonal to the blockchain itself. Uh, it doesn't really, uh, one could basically argue that that's not, that, that those are equally valid uh, ways of attacking regular software. So it's not something that is unique to blockchains. It's a general internet problem, right? So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I would treat that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, regular companies are still having, uh, issues with, you know, people remembering passwords and, uh, all of that. So, yeah, your mileage may vary. Some of the good things that I see that's happening over the horizon, which can kind of help a lot, is two-factor authentication. Uh, I think the adoption of two-factor authentication is uh, going strong, and I think that's something that now grandmas can use, right? Because there are apps, and that's quite common to see it, and there's usually a defined way of doing it. There seems to be some commonality in the user experience. Uh, another standard that I see coming is what's known as the FIDO standard, uh, which is around biometrics, right? So um, the idea of using biometric data like your fingerprints uh, to, uh, uh, you know, validate you, right? And that is definitely, if we can get that right, and I think that is currently being actively adopted by uh, the FANG companies, for example, right? So... Uh, Amazon and Google and all of those uh, are looking at FIDO quite seriously. I expect that to happen uh, relatively soon. But uh, once that happens, uh, then uh, absolutely uh, there's nothing stopping blockchain companies from doing that and making uh, the user experience of security uh, much easier. It has its own set of problems. Obviously, there's there's <laughs> the obviously the eternal argument of okay, are you giving up your biometrics to uh, quote unquote the man? Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's it, like I said, it's a balance. All right, folks. 
that concludes our podcast we hope that you enjoyed this episode on blockchain security you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play and spotify also you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com thanks again for joining see you next time